Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Very happy to have Mark Doton here. He is the author of the novel Infernal. In uh, 2017, he was named one of Grant's best best of young American novelists. He wrote the libretto for the oratorio The Source, which had its world premiere at BAM's Next Wave Festival in October 2014 and was called a 21st century masterpiece by the uh, New York Times. He is the literary editor at Soho Press and teaches at Princeton University and Columbia University. He lives in Princeton, New Jersey. Welcome to Los Angeles. Happy that you're here. Um, he'll read for about 15 minutes, and then he will be joined uh, with uh, uh, Nathan Duell. Uh, he wrote the book Friday Was the Bomb, Five Years in the Middle East. He has work in the uh, New York Times Magazine, Harper's, GQ, and the Paris Review. So please welcome Mark. Thank you, Noel, for that introduction. And uh, yeah, it's great to be here at Skylight, which is one of the truly great bookstores. And uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing to get to read here. Uh, so I'm going to read from two parts of the book. Uh, I'm going to read the, from the opening chapter, uh, which has Trump aboard his, the lead airship and his fleet of airships um, starting a nuclear war that ends the world. Uh, spoiler. Uh, I think it says that on the flap copy, so it's, it's okay. And then we flash forward a year later to, and this is where the bulk of the book takes place, to a journalist named Rachel who is assigned a puff piece for a reconstituted version of the New York Times Magazine, which Nathan, you work for it. We'll have to talk about that. Uh, and it, it is not the New York Times Magazine as we know it. It is controlled by the government as all media outlets are in this period. But they feel it's important to start journalism up again for you know, their own various reasons. And yeah, I think, so I'm going to read the, the main chunk of the, about 70% of the book centers on Rachel and her quest to research um, this puff piece on internet humor at the end of the world, what people were tweeting and writing about on 4chan and stuff in the last hours before the nuclear apocalypse and the, uh, you know, the question the book asks us, what, what would that be like? And I, my my answer is it would be probably exactly like what Twitter is like right now. Just people make you know doing their best to make snarky little jokes and and comments. And I think that was proved recently in it was in November December in New York City. There was a 
gigantic transformer explosion that turned the entire night sky this vivid, strange blue. And yeah, people just made a bunch of jokes about aliens landing and nuclear attacks and the end of the world. And they got a bunch of retweets for the you know funnier ones and stuff. And I, I uh, yeah, I was happy to see that. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read. Trump Sky Alpha, the rigid airship that docked on the roof of the White House and the roof of Trump Tower, a thousand-foot vessel from the bridge of which Trump delivered streaming YouTube addresses every Wednesday, D.C. to New York, and every Sunday, New York to D.C., Trump's ultra-luxury Zeppelin Crystal Palace of the sky on which the 224 seats, luxury berths in an open loge style, went for a starting price of 50 thousand dollars, a figure that jumped with the, the addition of various ultra-deluxe packages and enhancements, the golden encrustment and diamond troika elite tiers, four figures for the 10-star double platinum seafood, certified eight-pound lobsters with Trump embossed on tail fin and right claw, wine pairings offered by animated founding foodie Ben Franklin on touchscreen, Franklin adjusting spectacles and cataloging flights of Trump wine, the feu de cheminée, and the blanc de blanc de la plus blanc, the final bill after disembarkment running to 20 pages or more of often obscure fees and surcharges, bag fees and negative weather clemency, credits and per-use charges on the ergonomic loge controls, every seat adjustment noted by the system and itemized. The seats arranged in an oblong spiral that circled the, f that looped the transparent floor six times, the entire body of the aircraft constructed from a revolutionary transparent membrane stretched over a skeleton of mop white aluminum, white ribs inlaid with gold and platinum, and a firmament of crystal jewels. Seats facing inward amphitheater style, and at center a circular bridge of bulletproof glass. The view from all 224 seats opening vertiginously onto the National Mall or Central Park and Midtown as the craft lifted off, offering a pristine God's eye view of our great nation. Trump's hands on and then off the wheel as he gestured during his live-streamed address, seeming to float at the center of the craft, unleashing all the old familiar gestures, the little pointy duckbill, the poke, the palms out stop that would flow into a second gesture, fingers still fanned out, as though meeting a resistant force, a crazy horizontal spring, Trump grimacing with effort, elbows pinching into his waist, that's the That's, for the podcast listeners, that's not going to be very good. Uh, <laughs> but I just did that gesture. And people liked it. Uh, his whole body contorting at the sheer ridiculousness of whatever enemy he was describing, Trump putting his rubberized face by turns frog-lipped and hemorrhoidal, pig and pop-eyed through its paces, an array of comic disapprovals, hands resting now and then on the big gold-spoked wheel that at times seemed in his power and others appeared to turn of its own accord, Trump almost floating there in the sky, drawing no salary, wholly removed from the business side of the Trump organization and Trump's guy alpha for the duration of his presidency. But he could still 
fly in it, couldn't he? You're not saying that's illegal. The whole bridge rotating behind its circular glass wall, 360 degree rotations every four minutes, Trump turning and turning as Trump's Sky Alpha twice a week made stately progress between New York and DC, rerouting itself without notice every month or so, a mid-flight impromptu uh, change to Mar-a-Lago. You couldn't let them know in advance, alert them to your plans. The aircraft warping the clouds and sky behind, sailing for Florida or New York or Washington, D.C., above it a massive American flag with Trump's face superimposed, squinting and grinning. The flag itself, LED-enabled fabric mirroring Trump's expression via real-time video capture, the highways and port cities of the eastern seaboard spread out below, cars pulling over, families stepping out of vehicles to take in the aircraft, the people of America pointing up, saying things like, wow, and look, Dad. Kids and parents and grandparents, these gathered generations, thanking him right there for his extraordinary, truly unprecedented achievements in the White House, more done in these months than in all the decades of all the other guys before. So it was 10 out of 10, A plus, that they'd have to be giving him as a grade. Trump not only loved, but widely and almost universally beloved. The most beloved president in history, just as the Americans below, were the best Americans, the most beautiful, saluted or whooping and hollering or standing looking skyward in stunned and adoring silence. Trump rotating and raising a fist, his voice filling the craft. Trump interrupting his own extemporaneous thoughts on the events of the past week to point or wink at a chair that had moved to the front while several co-pilots and a whole team of staffers and security personnel and military folk worked in a concealed bay in the aft of White Opaque Bay that was markedly empty tonight. No co-pilot, no staff, no passengers. Trump's Sky Alpha tearing itself free of the moorings of the White House roof, shocking the military and Secret Service and the White House staffers who milled about on the ground, even Trump's private security caught flat-footed. Staffers and military and members of the deep state who had told the president again and again, all day long, that under the extraordinary circumstances unfolding around the world, the nuclear attacks, the hundreds or thousands of ongoing conflicts, the millions or perhaps tens of millions or more already dead, Trump would absolutely not be permitted to fly Trump Sky Alpha. Mr. President, we can get you into a bunker with full communication equipment and you can give your address there. You just can't do it in a goddamn plastic blimp at the start of World War III. And that's the first sentence of the book. Okay, so the bulk of the chapter then describes, you know, this trip that Trump is taking, how he got on the airship, and the end of the world events that are unfolding. And I'm going to jump to uh, the end, the last page and a half of this chapter. And we're in the Situation Room with his staffers, cabinet members, generals. Uh, While well, he's still up on the aircraft, there was simply no way of stopping him. No way that the people in the Situation Room could see to make it end, and right there he authorized it. Aboard Trump Sky Alpha on the YouTube live stream, he authorized the big one. A massive response. Lobsters in Bermuda and Turkey in Paris raising branded claws and silent salute as the flames engulfed them. The last remaining cameras going dark. Helicopters and fighter jets crisscrossing the airspace. 
around and in front of the big smoky capsule surrounded by whirling rotors, U.S. President Donald J. Trump floating at the center of it all. And he pressed the automated descent button, his face smudged like a chimney sweeps, and the live stream cut out for a final pitch for boutique shopping experiences. Ivanka on video offering bangles and Donald J. Trump's signature neckwear and vacation ownership opportunities. And then back to Trump full frame at the wheel of Trump Sky Alpha. Another thumbs up to the YouTube live stream audience to all those watching, those who still had internet, those still alive. And in the Situation Room, Trump was almost hypnotic. Hair a gentle swirl, seeming to coalesce on his head before swimming apart. Hair alive, undulating and thin and on the verge of collapse. Sculpt fully visible, pale and fat as a peeled, hard-boiled egg. And they were in the room, just there, a small mass of people who had no idea what to do individually or collectively, and Trump had already announced it. The big option right there on the live stream to the whole world, to all our allies and our enemies. And around the world, protocols and contingency plans were going into effect. There just wasn't any time, no way to wiggle out of the moment, to say sorry, to say stop, to say we fucked up. Nothing to be done. There might have been a chance once to resist. There must have been, but that moment was lost somewhere. It had slipped away, and where had all the little moments been? There must have been so many chances to not be where we were, but this is where we were. These American human animals were just right there. And there was nothing to be done. They could do the big one or just nothing, sit passively, hemmed in by life and by all the possibilities. They couldn't quite dream into the real. And they understood that to play was to lose, but to bow out, to step away from the table, to renounce play altogether was no longer an option if it ever had been. And so it was the football, the gold codes. It was all initiated. It would start very soon, all that just minutes away. The big event, the one we'd been waiting for for the better part of a century. The button got pushed. It was easy, sure. It really was, now that it was done and across the Midwest and elsewhere, the missiles took to the sky as President Trump landed softly on the roof of Trump Tower, not listening for it, but hearing nonetheless, somewhere far below, faint and inescapable as his own heartbeat, the oceanic roar of protesters flooding the streets of Manhattan, crashing through the doors of Trump Tower and up every stairwell. And now I'm gonna leap forward to just the first couple pages of Rachel's report on internet humor at the end of the world. Grab a little water. Remember when Trump drank water? <laughs> that was funny, right? I hope I, uh, yeah, did I drink it in a normal looking way? If there's a video of that, would that look weird the way I drank that water? Yeah, when Trump drank water, what a moment. The jokes at the end of the world do not have time to coalesce, to gain the full approval of the internet, of the parts of the internet to which and through which such jokes normally would be spoken. Ratio alert, gif, 
Terrible girl hits bathroom bug with shovel. T2 clip of blasted skeleton clinging to chain link fence. Whispering to date during the apocalypse when the apocalypse first appears. That's the apocalypse. Trump's taco bowl pick, except the taco bowl is a globe dotted with mushroom clouds, videos of Ivanka throwing up on herself, screaming no, 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 caption nothing but respect for my president. Hashtag resist, hashtag the resistance, hashtag not my president. What is binch? What is corncob? But with human extinction, hashtag Blimkazi, Trump's airship, Trump's sky alpha, the obvious jokes about the palace in the sky spreading nukes, bags of money as ballast, the truth of it outstripping the jokes, as had always been the case with Trump. Lame old cartoons of Trump's sky alpha crashing into Lady Liberty, crashing into Mount Rushmore, etc., recirculating Der Spiegel's cover from November 2016, Das Endervelt, Trump's head is a huge meteor hurtling toward Earth, people live tweeting his live streamed address. It doesn't make sense, it doesn't all quite make sense, but people go for the jokes anyway. Hashtag, has Trump landed yet? Feels good, man. The internet is dying, blinking out. The internet, internet's record of its own destruction and that of the greater part of human life and civilization is given in part through jokes. Many of them familiar, they're often modified, mutating. People are making apocalypse jokes like there's no tomorrow, for instance, is an old joke already available in multiple image macros. The lame pun coon in blue color wheel. The bad joke eel jutting from the ocean floor, jaw tensed, vacant push pin eyes, clocking your reaction, standard bold impact font, white letters in black outline. That joke is one of many that proliferate on 128. Long dormant memes alive again for one last night, faces of Keanu and exhibit, woke AF at the Buffalo Wild Wings, flowing into other memes, the available prefab containers, Trollface, Nyancat, Crying Jordan, countless iterations of Pepe, people bringing back the old things, the old dead memes. It became a kind of contest, a curtain call, a last chance at everything that had passed us by an activation of knowledge of all internet traditions. The all internet traditions meme itself dating to a comment on a 2008 post on the left political blog, Lawyers, Guns, and Money about the apocryphal Michelle Obama whitey tape. Hashtag curtain call, hashtag all internet traditions. Or it was, as others said, a glitch in the matrix. Everything released all at once. A collapse of history, of chronology. The system vomiting itself forth before it expired. In any case, passing on jokes, ringing the last changes on a bad joke is how many spend their final hours. And there is a gentleness to so much of it, even amid the horror. Familiar, comforting, buffering the experience, slotting it into the known. And I'm gonna stop there. Thank you. Nathan Duell. Oh, such a good book, Mark. So good to hear out loud. Um, but before we talk too much about this book, I do want to talk briefly about your last book, The Infernal. Great. I, and buy a copy of that too, please. You absolutely should. Um, I first uh, knew Mark's work and met him because of that first novel. 
which I love very much. Um, and it, where, where this one is obviously from what he read, taking on Trump and the internet, the Infernal is more about uh, Wolfowitz and Cheney and uh, Rumsfeld. And uh, I don't know, can you tell us a little about what, what you were trying to accomplish with that book? What was the problem you were kind of trying to solve in writing that? Um, I, you know, with the first book, I, you know, I think it's a book about political madness, the madness of our times. Um, and in that case, it was a book that was very much about transforming the politicians and media figures who were mentioned in it uh, into kind of grotesque versions of themselves. They spoke as they would never speak in real life. They said things they'd never said and never would say in real life. Um, but, you know, it was, I mean, the George W. Bush years were just so bad and crazy and, and awful. And I think, you know, that's something that in kind of notable ways gets very glossed over now. You know, I mean, Bush started a war in the Middle East that, you know, killed a million people in the Middle East. And now Michelle Obama hands him cough drops or something at funerals. I, I don't know quite what it is, but, you know, the rehabilitation of George W. Bush is an extraordinary thing and ongoing and, and interesting. So that book was sort of about, I don't know, ripping the surface off and revealing, you know, the actual just evil of, <laughs> of that moment. And then with this one, the nice thing is uh, Trump actually talks kind of like a narrator from the infernal already. So like, you're, in this case, it's actually, you know, channeling the political discourse of our moment and the internet discourse. And it's much more, um, it, you know, it's obviously exaggerated for various reasons, but the world we're in right now, just on the level of language is kind of close to some of what I was attempting in the infernal and what now in, in this book is, you know, much nearer to the reality than it was in the first book. Yeah, so, yeah, The Infernal was dark and critical and frightening, but when I was reading this book, I mean, I, I wrote about this in the LA Times, wanting to, like, spend some of my time reading it, standing up, literally, like, kind of half screaming. I mean, my wife was there when I was reading some of it. I was just, like, pacing the house, like, you cannot believe this book. You cannot believe what this guy is accomplishing. But um, it, it, t speaking about, for instance, the way you, you render Trump, you don't seem to, like, purely hate him. You know, there's almost something... You, you, there's almost like a strange sort of admiration you have for, for how bonkers this guy is. What was it like to write that like three and a half page sentence? Uh, I mean, to say that I don't hate Trump may be possibly a, a misstatement of facts, um, but I will say, I mean, he's an interesting character to write just from a voice perspective and we didn't, so the, the the novel is bookended by there's this opening thing where we we sort of see Trump acting and then we get a replay of that scene later where we hear the monologue, the YouTube address that gets address, excuse me. Um, that's always my big fear in reading this is it'll say address instead of address and I just did. Um, yeah, and, and that actually has, you know, it's, it's a monologue from him so it's about capturing the rhythms and, and the, the character of his speech, you know, but it's, I mean, I think for, in order to do Trump, you know, for me there's, you know, it is about cat, 
capturing the the sort of forking, strange nature of his speech. He's a man with a deeply broken brain. You know, he sounds like um, I've mentioned. Like, I mean, he sounds like a relative with dementia. You know, constantly trying to, you know, forgetting sort of where he is in a sentence and zigzagging all over the place in in ways that are, you know, obviously horrible for. <laughs> president, but interesting for a, a fiction writer. And, uh, you know, capturing, it, you know, in a way the challenge with him is that his brain is so profoundly and interestingly broken that you'll never be able to keep up with him. You'll never be able to predict what he's going to do. The thing I always think about is after the final changes, um, the final corrections in my book were done. It was locked in, couldn't do anything else. He had that tweet about how the things he had done during the transition were, quote, very legal and very cool. <laughs> and, he, I mean, you wouldn't predict it. Like, it doesn't sound <laughs> that Trumpian in a way. Like, it's a, but in retrospect, it does, because it's just part of the strange discourse that this man is continually producing. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that was an interesting part of it is, you know, making sure in a way to create something that's exaggerated enough that he, in reality, will never be able to surpass it, hopefully, even as you know that he's going to be doing all kinds of stuff that later you're going to be like, damn it, I wish I had cut that in the book. So I did, the, the day I read the book, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking, uh, or the day I started the book, I, I can't wait to read a book that has a lot of Twitter in it. There's so much Twitter in this. Uh, you, you work uh, in such sort of rich and surprising ways with memes. Like, can you, can you talk about what it was like to try and nail that? I mean, it was another time where I was standing there like, oh my God, this, what sort of voodoo has Mark tapped into? How is he capturing this so perfectly? I, you know, the, the Twitter stuff, that was sort of the origin of it was, I had an idea of you know, writing a book about the internet humor at the end of the world, and, and I started it in late 2015. And, you know, it seemed like either Hillary was going to be the president or a Republican nominee, and I was writing some of it and then sort of maintaining this open space for figuring out who would be president. And then after the Republican convention, when Trump pulled even in the polls, you know, I got kind of terrified and wrote the a part I didn't read tonight, but the first part, the first Trump part is his, his monologue that he delivers, which I then published that summer. Um, and yeah, in terms of I, well, now I feel like Trump. I'm like I'm losing the thread of my sentence. Very legal. Very uh, cool. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Everything I'm doing is very legal and very cool. Please understand that. Uh, yeah. So anyway, like in terms of the the social media stuff, my sort of previous big thing I'd worked on was the opera that was mentioned, um, The Source, which is all collaged from primary source texts oh, that, that were sense. released by Chelsea Manning in the WikiLeaks, you know, MegaLeak, and also some chat sessions between um, Adrian Lamo and, Lamo and um, Chelsea Manning. And so working in that way, trying to capture the flow of the internet, just the, the strange temporality of the internet, the weird way that things repeat and, and, and recur, and just trying to you know, in some way create a representation of that sort of stream that we all, you know, live in now. Um, and I'm personally, you know, I, I'm on Twitter way too often. <laughs> I, I love Twitter. 
Uh, I there's so many yeah I think there's amazing writing on Twitter all the time so trying to uh, it was really moving from that the Chelsea Manning thing to sort of creating something that in this case a lot of it is is not real memes but some of it is um, but yeah that experience of just trying to capture the flow of the way it feels to be on on social media was what I was interested in so I think The Infernal is sort of a risky, difficult book. Um, and, you know, writing how the internet works at the end of the world, another sort of like formal risk. But uh, later in the book, you start entering the world of this character, Rachel. So what was it like to create a character who's, you know, one of your most normal characters yet, even though she's tasked with sort of writing the first New York Times Magazine cover story after the end of the world, but. Oh, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to do people that are not deranged in my experience. Uh, <laughs> and she's, but you know, she was fun to write too. She's a very, so she's a deeply avoidant character. Her wife and daughter died during the events of, of 128 that um, Trump precipitates in the book. And you know, that creates an interesting narrative challenge um, for someone who is emotionally avoidant, but you still want eventually to get to those, emo to get to the grief, get to the emotion, show it in, in, in you know, whatever ways one can do that. And also, I mean, she's very much, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Didion's three political novels, Book of Common Prayer, Democracy, and The Last Thing You Wanted. Love those books, I reread them a lot. And she is, in many ways, like, sort of modeled on a, a Didion-style narrator who's, and what, you know, one of the things that's so great about Didion's work in those books is how she, has created a form that can assimilate so much information of different types from, you know, bureaucratic documents, journalism, you know, RAND reports, et cetera, and, and create in them like the, the sort of amazing cross-cutting, you know, sort of excavation of, of, of politics. And I, yeah, I love and admire those books. And that was, Rachel is definitely indebted to them. Oh yeah, that, that helps me understand how Rachel feels so real as you, you were using her to sort of work through some political ideas. So, I mean, you, you inhabit that Trump voice, you inhabit the Twitter voice, you inhabit Rachel, but another voice that I was really uh, impressed by, it's a great book, you all really have to read it, is uh, The Aviary and this sort of like mysterious man be, that might, may or may not be uh, behind the end of the world that has written a book that is inside your book. Um, which is a wonderfully delicious thing to think about. Um, where did some of that fairly sophisticated thinking about the internet and how it began and how it changes, where did all that come from for you? For me, so there's a, there's a wonderful book called Protocol by James Galloway, which I, I highly recommend, which thinks about the deeper structures of the internet and how you know the internet, we sort of, you know, in the 90s, there was a sort of viewpoint on the internet, which you know, you'd see in Wired and, and other, kind of evangelical places for the internet. There was this, you know, space of freedom and there's a famous, uh, there's a, a famous declaration of independence of the internet by John Perry Barlow, who just passed away recently, that it has this, it's, you know, it's an amazing piece, everyone should read it, it's just a couple of pages long, but it's, you know, it's this sort of ecstatic language about, you know, governments, you know, we are the people of the future, you have no place here, you know, we are, et cetera, like, we are a place of no place, you know, I'm, I'm not getting it, the quotes verbatim, but it, it has this sort of, ama you know, amazing point of view on the internet being this place of total 
freedom beyond government control and you know beyond sort of traditional ideologies and what we have seen of course in the last decade particularly but uh, is you know the internet is a space of bullying and hatred and and you know huge pylons we have I mean what the events in New Zealand which were so terrible and you know involved the internet in profound ways and like the toxic and you know this is not you know I, I love the internet um, or at least I you know am on it on social media quite a bit but uh, the you know we're all very aware now of this sort of dark and toxic side of the internet and the way in which on Twitter um, in particular though you know other sites as well the that ethos that 90s ethos enables you know the the fact that Twitter just you know won't ban Nazis and won't ban people who you know do these big pylons in in really brutal ways is emerges from that sort of technocratic hippie libertarian culture that that uh, fostered the internet so maybe I'll just a final question and then we'll open it up so this is the sort of town mark where you say you're a writer and people assume you're writing not books but like TV and movies mm. and stuff and um, you know I wonder if you could just talk about you know your, your work at Soho Press or with this book like what 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 do you think books are able to accomplish anymore like how do you feel as a writer of them a publisher of them at a time when TV and movies are such a big deal Oh, well, I mean, yeah, the novel is still, like, the greatest form in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I probably spend more time watching television on Netflix than I do <laughs> reading books. That, I'm not sure if that's true. It's setting aside my work reading as an editor. But, um, I mean, the novel is this great form that can take in so many different types of forms. I mean, the sort of stuff I was talking about with Didion. But, you know, you think of how just amazing and capacious, you know, great novels can be, you know, I mean, think of the number of different voices and forms contained within Moby Dick or, or, or Don Quixote. And, and it continues to be that, and it can continue to assimilate, you know, our culture now. I mean, the reason Cat Person, that short story, became such a phenomenon is because it, it was able to integrate in a way that, you know, and I, I quite admire that story, um, elements of, you know, just, communication now the the way that you know texting and relationships work in, in a way that that felt you know really kind of new and exciting so um, yeah I mean the novel the novel endures and it will always I think as long as you know well always you know at least another 50 years you know <laughs> awesome thanks Mark Thank all you. right so you people what do you think got any questions for the man um, I, I can't say enough about this new book. Yeah, go ahead. Extreme crushing distress. Should I should I repeat questions for the podcast? Or yeah. so the the question was, um, what was my emotional state when I was writing the Trump stuff and the, you know, 
both in the, the lead up to the election and after, I think. Um, I mean, when I wrote the first, the Trump monologue that appears near the end that I didn't read from, you know, it was more, you know, the sort of notional thing of, of, of Trump and I was frightened that he could win, but I still didn't, you know, I, I was, you know, I was on the New York Times website and Nate Silver and all that stuff and remember that, the snake? Remember that snake on the New York Times website, the like, you know what I'm talking about, that blue snake that it, it would show how many states ahead Hillary was and how she was totally, you know, just gonna clean up in the Electoral College. And uh, so I was concerned, but I still believed Hillary would win. And then, you know, that's not what happened. And then the, I wrote the first part, the, which I opened my reading with that opening couple pages of that. And that was just written in, I mean, I was, I think like a lot of people, very upset and devastated by the election results and it was in, in pretty rough shape for that month. And so, I, I mean, it was this uh, kind of, for me that was, you know, I don't normally think of writing as any type of therapeutic thing, but you know, channeling everything into that just gave me some sense of just my being able to use that sort of rage and helplessness and, and, and anger and fear and stuff and put it all into a, a container of fiction. Yes. So the question is, did I give any thought to what politics would look like in a post-Trump world, presumably if there's not this apocalyptic event? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. I, I, I think, you know, the right wing will, there's not, I don't think there'll be a huge correction on the right that will bring people back to some more, you know, normal politics, which, you know, normal was, of course, already very bad. As I mentioned, there was that war that killed a million people in the Middle East um, during the normaler times. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're gonna be in a situation where you, there just has to be a, a left politics that is, excites people, that, you know, engages and excites people and, and also takes the kind of risks that Republicans do. I mean, people talk about abolishing the electoral college and packing the courts, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, whatever it takes. The, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell had no problem denying Obama a Supreme Court seat, and, and Democrats tend to be much more reasonable about such things, and they should not be. Another question. I feel like some, I told someone they had to ask a question, was it? <laughs> okay, I told you. I got another one for you. What are you working on next? And maybe a corollary, um, maybe describe some of your influences. We were trying to explain your, or you were trying to explain the book to a colleague. She's like, oh, like that pension guy. And I've, you know, I've, I've always thought you as slightly Coover-esque, but maybe you could talk about writers you admire and inspire you, and then what are you trying to do next? Okay. Um, next, I'm going to do a story collection, and then I have another novel also post-apocalyptic, that'll be my last 
post-apocalyptic novel. I, really I don't hope. believe you. Um, but it's something I've been working, that was actually the first novel I was writing, and it, each of the two novels I published then intervened and, and took over, because I think because the, the initial novel is, is very difficult to figure out, it jumps in time a thousand years and then another thousand years, and um, I haven't really figured out what the third section, 2,000 years in the future, it should be like. So I think that's why I keep pushing that aside. Uh, in terms of influences, you know, I mean, this book has, you know, I've always been an admirer of, um, I grew, always been an admirer is going to sound, is not quite the right term. When I was a kid, we watched, and my sister Beck is here, she can attest to this, watched a ton of James Bond movies. So, you know, I've always been, and I, I love the Mission Impossible franchise now, so I've always been drawn to the, you know, the evil character who delivers the monologue. And... Uh, <laughs> And I'm also a huge fan of um, writing that has that sort of monologic quality. Um, Beckett, Dostoevsky's Underground Man, uh, the particularly the Austrian writer Thomas Bernhardt. Um, and so I think the the section that that you alluded to, narrated by Bird Crash, this sort of evil figure, is definitely influenced both by those type of you know pop culture entertainments with the that sort of evil monologue, but also um, you know by these these novels that work in that sort of style of the you know the mad monologue, the sort of spiraling thoughts um, that the narrator just keeps looping around on these sort of recursive monologues and um, the. Bernhardt's, one of his early great novels is called Gargoyles, and it's a fascinating one because it opens with a, convent, the first half is a conventional narrative, and then this boy and his father, a doctor, meet this uh, prince who lives in a castle, and uh, yeah, I think prince, and uh, he, then the second half of the book is just that guy talking, and it's amazing, and it's kind of a thrilling shift and I love those kind of those shifts and the ability to bring in those very disparate textures. Awesome. Can't wait. Oh yeah. Oh wow now we got a couple. So yeah and then you um, you know Rumsfeld Twitter just commented we have a very comical face here they call him Rumsfeld you know he's saying like you can't send away the comedy of but Karen and I kind of just get it because we're both like oh so absurdly funny and like it's really hard to it's harder to get to the next level almost. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the nice thing is that if reality surpasses the thing I created, so the question is, uh, do I worry, like, just on Trump on satire, sort of the failures of SNL to adequately satirize Trump, and do, do I worry about Trump surpassing the book? And, you know, I'll be dead if Trump surpasses the book. <laughs> because you know, there'll be a global nuclear war. But I mean, I, I did deliberately exaggerate, you know, I mean, have things like this fleet of Zeppelins, um, which is, you know, kind of a, an extreme expansion of the, you know, Trump Hotel, the emolument stuff, the, uh, you know, the Trump DC Hotel was a focus of a great deal of, of writing, um, David Fahrenheit at the Washington Post in particular. 
uh, in the transitional period. And um, yeah, so I wanted to create things that were so far beyond it that reality would not be able to outstrip it. Mm -hmm. So far. How are we doing on time? Yeah, in the back. Last one? Oh, oh yeah. Or two quick ones. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, yes, I do. And so the question is writing process. And so I work as a book editor during the day. And um, this book was almost entirely written between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. after my partner went to sleep. Um, and I think the, that qualities of it being an, a night book <laughs> are, I think it would be a very different book if I had, if I say didn't have a day job and I had written it during the day. And um, yeah, but uh, yeah, that's it. So last, was there a last question here? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I mean, just, you know, I, I mean, I think the best thing you can do um, is to read really deeply into, like, find the authors you love and read their entire work. Like, read all of Melville, read all of Didion, you know, read all of Thomas Bernhardt, or those were things I've done. <laughs> for instance. Uh, but, you know, for you, it would be a different, probably, constellation of authors, or, but you actually do those three. Uh, <laughs> And uh, yeah, I, mean, I think that's the most important thing, apart from having a daily writing practice, even if it's only a half hour. Um, it's that systematic reading of, of interesting and challenging and amazing authors. So yeah, yes. Ooh, I hope they do. Ooh, that'd be so great. So the question is, what if Trump? Supporters read this, and there's a mob mentality, and everyone yells at me on Twitter and says mean things and stuff. Uh, oh, God, I hope so. I mean, that has not happened yet. And, of course, the dream, which will never happen because, you know, Trump is functionally illiterate, is that, uh, you know, he would tweet about the book. But, you know, so, but, like, my biggest, you know, vision board aspiration is that Donald Trump Jr. tweets about it, since I think that's, you know, that's the biggest one I could imagine actually doing it. Um... But yeah, I mean, obviously it's not fun. So the, it's not fun to be a, a, at the center of an online pylon, and I'm sure it would be psychologically quite taxing, and I would be very unhappy when it was happening. Um, yeah, I think there's at least one person in the audience who's who's experienced this, right, Connor? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I am from the Midwest. I like everyone to like me, and I so. Uh, it would be difficult, but it would be good for the book. Yeah, I mean, it would be great. Like, so let's let's make that happen. Everyone, set up a fake conservative account and start saying mean things to me, please. <laughs> and and tag you know Trump administration people and Fox News people and stuff in it, so they also get into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if Fox News ever ran a segment on the book, that would probably be great for, from a sales perspective. I think Devin Nunes would like it a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming out, and thanks to Skylight. This is so cool. And uh, yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.